The impacts of climate change are now so conspicuous that it is becoming impossible for people to, with any credibility at all, deny that this is an immense challenge to well-being on the planet. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. In this series, I've had the pleasure of engaging in conversations with a really stellar group of men and women with tremendous expertise in energy and environmental policy, some of whom have combined substantial work in the academic world with very significant service in the public sector. And my guest today truly exemplifies that combination. John Holdren is a research professor and until recently was the Teresa and John Hines Professor of Environmental Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard. He took an extended leave of absence from the university from January 2009 to January 2017 to serve in the Obama administration as the president's science advisor and as director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And he was, in fact, the longest serving science advisor to the president in the history of the position. Before coming to Harvard, he was a longtime faculty member at the University of California, Berkeley, where he co-founded the well-known Energy Resources Group. John, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you. It's great to be here, Rob. And it's great to have you. So I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the current state of climate change policy and energy policy which has been a major focus of yours for quite some time. But before we talk about that, let's go back to how you came to be where you are and and where you've been. And when I say go back, I always mean go way back. So tell us, where did you grow up? I grew up in San Mateo, California, on the uh, San Francisco Peninsula, and um, attended public schools there uh, through high school. And then you went to college where? I went to MIT. Um, Most of my friends uh, from high school went to Stanford or Berkeley, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to see how the other half lived, so I went to MIT. And when you went to MIT, did you know what it was that you wanted to major in, or did that evolve while you were there? I I really did. Uh, When I was in high school, I became fascinated by the big interdisciplinary problems at the intersection of science and society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wanted uh, to get an education that would be very strong in science, but also very strong in social science and humanities, because I actually intended, uh, from the time I was a junior in high school, to find a way to work at that uh, intersection across the disciplines. That's remarkable, given how things turned out, that you actually foresaw that and wanted it at such a young age. Well, it was because of a couple of books I read as a junior in high school. One of them was C.P. Snow's book, The Two Cultures, which argued that uh, many of society's most important and difficult challenges sat in the gap 
between natural science and engineering on the one hand and humanities and social science on the other, and that the world was very short of people who were trained in operating in that gap. Uh, and that book persuaded me that I wanted to be one of those folks who, who was able to move between those two cultures and work on the problems that required insights from both. So from there, from MIT, did you go directly to Stanford for the PhD? Yes, I did. I got two degrees at MIT uh, in aeronautics and astronautics uh, with a very strong uh, minor in uh, German philosophy and literature and, an, and another minor in space physics. And then I went to Stanford uh, to work on a PhD in theoretical plasma physics because it was, it was interesting, it was hard, and I felt that if I succeeded in theoretical plasma physics and then moved into interdisciplinary work, no one could accuse me of not being able to make it uh, in a discipline. That certainly sounds right, but let me ask you for the sake of our listeners, and actually for my sake as well, what is plasma physics? Well, plasma is the fourth state of matter. If you think uh, you start with a solid and you heat it, it becomes a liquid. If you heat it some more, it becomes mm -hmm. a gas. Mm -hmm. And if you heat the gas enough, the electrons are peeled off the ions Mm -hmm. and it becomes an electrically conducting gas, which is a plasma. I see. And so you studied plasma physics. Your PhD dissertation itself, I assume, was in that realm. Is that it right? Was in, it was in theoretical plasma physics, and uh, it led to my first post-PhD job, which was as a physicist in the theory group of the Magnetic Fusion Energy Division at the Livermore Lab, and the Livermore Lab, uh, for those who don't know, tell us about its location. Well, the, the Livermore Lab uh, is, uh, is located about 50 miles east of Berkeley in the Livermore Valley. It is one of the uh, nation's uh, nuclear weapon laboratories, uh, was uh, founded as a twin to the Los Alamos Nuclear Weapons Lab. Mm -hmm. But typically about half of the work that goes on there is uh, not related to nuclear weapons, but is broader uh, science and technology work. And the Magnetic Fusion Energy Program was one of the unclassified programs there in which uh, plasma physics is applied to the challenge of harnessing uh, fusion mm -hmm. as a practical energy source uh, for society, a, a, a challenge that has been uh, pursued for about 70 years now and which yes. still has not succeeded. Right, right. Now from, from there you went directly <clears throat> west to UC Berkeley, is that right? Not quite right. Okay. While I was while I was at the Livermore Lab, I was teaching for a day a week at Berkeley uh -huh. as as a lecturer mm -hmm. in an interdisciplinary program, which was just getting going there. Uh, it was called the Ecology of Electric Power Production and Utilization, mm -hmm. uh, and and I taught there uh, from 1970 until uh, 1972, mm -hmm. when I took a leave of absence from Livermore and I went to Caltech, the California Institute I of Technology, see. to work with another one of my mentors, the late, great Harrison Brown, a, a geochemist mm -hmm. who um, was also the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Sciences and a great international scientific statesman. Uh, and I couldn't resist the opportunity uh, to learn from Harrison Brown for a while, and so I went to Caltech and had a joint appointment 
in the Environmental Quality Laboratory and the Caltech Population Program in the Division of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. And then from Caltech, you went north to Berkeley? Exactly. In, in uh, January, well, excuse me, I, I was appointed in January, but I showed up in July of 1973 mm -hmm. as a campus-wide assistant professor of energy and resources. Huh. Uh, I had an appointment that did not report to any dean or any provost, reported directly to the office of the chancellor, and my task was to build interdisciplinary bridges uh, on energy, environment, development, uh, and security across the many uh, departments and schools at Berkeley. I, I assume that the result of that uh, aspiration was, in fact, the Energy and Resources Group. When was that founded? Well, it took a year and a half from the time I arrived in uh, July of 1973 to get the nine approvals from mm -hmm. campus committees and ultimately the legislature's committee on post-secondary education to offer new degrees to admit students and to offer our own courses. So the Energy and Resources Group, as a student-admitting degree-granting entity, mm -hmm. uh, started in 1975. I see. I see. Now, you became, obviously, a very central member of the Berkeley faculty, almost uh, an institution there. It must have been shocking to many uh, when you left Berkeley for Harvard, I believe in 1996. Um, I, guess, I guess my question is, uh, how did that come about and why did you do it? Well, first of all, I had a great run at Berkeley. I spent 23 years there. Uh, the program was flourishing, uh, the Energy and Resources Group. Mm -hmm. uh, we had, by the time I left, uh, graduated several hundred people with master's degrees and PhDs in Energy and Resources. Mm -hmm. uh, virtually all of them were gainfully employed in uh, the areas in which they were trained. So we actually had a better employment record than the physics department, uh, the economics department, or the electrical engineering department, mm -hmm. <laughs> because there was so much demand for people with interdisciplinary training mm -hmm. in, uh, in energy and environment. So I, I recognized that I could leave uh, without serious harm to the program. There were many other terrific people there by then, and I had very strong reasons to move. One was uh, I was traveling to uh, Washington, D.C. every week. Mm -hmm. uh, to serve both on President Clinton's Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology, and I was chairing four National Academy of Sciences committees at the time. So I would teach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, and then uh, get on a, uh, a red-eye to Washington, D.C. Thursday night. I'd spend uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday in Washington, D.C., mostly at the White House and the National Academy, and then I would get back on a plane on Monday night, teach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and go back again at the end of the week. I did that 13 weeks out of the 15-week uh, semester, academic semester. Uh, for the last two years, I was at Berkeley, and I finally came to the realization that uh, the commute to Washington, D.C. is a lot shorter from Cambridge, Massachusetts than it is from Berkeley, California. <laughs> so we benefited from the location of Harvard, it turns out. That's good to know. Um, so I want to turn now uh, to policy, and there's so much we can talk about. But I want to start just for a moment by going back to early work of yours, which I think is at, in the early part of the 1970s, 
with the great Paul Ehrlich, uh, a friend of yours, obviously, on population issues. Can We don't hear about that a lot nowadays. So I think it would be interesting to our listeners to learn what was your core thesis then and, and how do you reflect on it now? Well, I started to work uh, with Paul Ehrlich in uh, the fall of 1968, uh, shortly after he published uh, the book, The Population Bomb. Mm -hmm. And I became acquainted with him because I was uh, talking to my wife uh, over dinner about uh, what I thought was missing from his analysis. I thought uh, Paul's analysis uh, was basically very sound, but he paid too little attention to the role of science and technology. Uh, both as uh, a contributor in some cases to the environmental uh, harm uh, done by uh, a growing global population, but also as a set of solutions uh, to ameliorate some of that harm uh, and enable the world to live more comfortably uh, with the population that it had and was getting. Uh, and the result uh, of my conversation with my wife about that was that she persuaded me to write Paul Ehrlich a letter. Hmm. Uh, he called me up in my uh, cubicle in the Institute for Plasma Research and said, uh, come uh, have coffee with me. The coffee lasted six hours, and we had drafted our first paper together wow. at the end of that six hours. Uh, that paper was, uh, was published in 1969. And it was called Population and Panaceas, A Technological Perspective. Mm -hmm. And it basically made the argument that the usual uh, so-called solutions from technology will use desalting seawater to make the oceans bloom, we'll have cheap nuclear energy for everybody, uh, that those solutions all had limitations and liabilities, and that it was unwise to suppose that the human population could grow without limit with technology always uh, coming to the rescue in time. That was mm -hmm. the, basic, mm -hmm. uh, the basic principle. Uh, we subsequently did a lot of work on uh, the contributing factors to environmental and resource issues of various kinds and uh, developed this very elementary proposition that, that we call IPAT, impact equals population times affluence times technology, meaning number of people times economic activity per person times the technological impact uh, of making that economic uh, activity possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the argument was that all of the factors are important, none are unimportant, uh, they are multiplicative, uh, so growth in any one of them uh, contributes to the multiplicative product of the three and accelerates uh, harm to the environment. Uh, we, uh, Paul and I, actually uh, shared the Volvo International Environment Prize for this for this rather elementary insight. We used mm -hmm. to joke that it was like saying uh, the, 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 the number of legs is like the number of horses times four. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it's really uh, a very straightforward elaboration of the standard economic insight right. that, that economic activity equals the number of people times economic activity per person. Right. I've seen you use, I believe, an expanded form of that identity when teaching a, a, a basic session on the science of climate change to some of our students. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all, all one does in that case is you disaggregate the technology term into energy use per unit of economic activity mm -hmm. times 
greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy use. Yeah. And the result is an identity for de developing uh, the sum of greenhouse gas emissions as a four-way product, population times economic activity per person times energy per unit of economic activity times greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy. And uh, we we published that starting, I think, in about 1974. Again, an mm -hmm. absolutely elementary insight. Mm -hmm. uh, but it got a fair amount of attention because it was a very easy way to do back-of-the-envelope calculations about uh, the contributions of different factors. I, I do want to add that we said from the very beginning, by the way, that these factors are not uh, always independent. Mm -hmm. uh, we were sometimes accused of ignoring that, but in our very first publication on the topic, we pointed out uh, that very often the, the uh, level of economic activity determines what technologies are going to be used in order to meet it. Right. A and, um, and there are many other feedbacks uh, across those different factors. Right. I mean, but even looking at the basic identity, including all that endogeneity, the relationships among them, what it does provide is a wonderful framework uh, for thinking about a complex problem like climate change and for teaching uh, about climate change and climate change policy. And that's how we used it. Yeah. Exactly. So speaking of climate change and policy, I want to turn to your long service in the Obama administration. Uh, I think our listeners would be interested to hear what was what was the greatest high point for you and what was the most significant low point for you in the those eight years in the administration? Well, well I would say... Uh the high point was probably uh, President Obama's announcement in June of 2013 of his mm -hmm. climate action plan, right. uh, which ha had been brewing, of course, uh, uh, throughout the whole uh, time that President Obama was in office. I, in fact, had um, met President Obama and started advising him when he was still a senator. Uh, and uh, I was invited to meet with him and some other experts on climate change, and we hit it off. And mm -hmm. so I, I started advising him uh, on uh, the issues that became uh, the centerpiece of the Climate Action Plan, actually, in 2007. Uh, and um, uh, that certainly, uh, that coming to fruition in June of 2013, in the form of the uh, the three-part climate action plan, one part reduce domestic emissions, second part uh, increase uh, domestic uh, preparedness, resilience, and adaptation for the changes in climate that can no longer be avoided, and the third piece assist other countries in both mm -hmm. those respects. Uh, that was a big moment. Of course, the, uh, the achievement of the Paris Agreement uh, in December of 2015 mm -hmm. was a second big moment, and a third was... Uh, the president's meeting, President Obama meeting with President Xi in Beijing in November mm -hmm. of 2014, announcing that the United States and China recognized jointly uh, their uh, large responsibility for global greenhouse gas emissions and their determination uh, to lead on addressing the challenges uh, flowing from that. Th those uh, were certainly among the highlights, but I, I must admit I have a much longer list because I had, I really had a terrific uh, uh, experience uh, working for Obama in the White House for eight years, and there were many different issues, not just climate change, sure. on which we were able to make some progress. So I had a lot of high points. The biggest low point, I would say, is that we were not able to get the budget increases for mm -hmm. research and development 
that President Obama had committed himself to at the very beginning of his administration. He, mm-hmm. he gave a speech to the National Academy of Sciences in April of 2009 in which he said uh, we should be aiming to increase national expenditures, both public and private, on research and development to reach 3% of GDP, a level that had never been reached before, although it was approached at the height of the space race in the 1960s. Uh, we didn't get there, mm-hmm. and that was the single biggest disappointment. We didn't get there not from lack of interest, but from lack of ability to persuade the Congress right. uh, to boost those budgets. Right. Now, a number of our other Harvard colleagues served in the Obama administration with you and in other parts of the government, but I'm not sure that any of them were there as long as you, including uh, our friend and colleague Ash Carter, who went at the beginning and left at the end, but took two years off in the middle to go to Stanford. Uh, (laughs) So my question to you is, after eight years, what was it like to leave that very highly charged atmosphere, uh, and then to return to academia? Well, the, the, the first thing that happened is my blood pressure went down by 20 points within two <laughs> weeks of leaving the White House. Uh, that was an extremely rewarding job, but it was a very high-pressure job, and it mm-hmm. was 24-7, 365. Yeah. That is, officially, when you're what is called a commissioned officer, uh, 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 of the president. Mm-hmm. You, you are on duty all the time. Uh, you can never be out of touch. Uh, you can't go anywhere uh, without uh, having a, uh, a way for the White House to reach you immediately if the president wants you. Uh, and there is such a continuing flow of issues that need your immediate attention that it, that it really is a very high-pressure environment. I loved it. Uh, but the first thing that happened when I left was uh, the onset of a degree of relaxation that I had not experienced for eight years. Well, that's good then. So let's turn to uh, the current world of climate change policy. Uh, in terms of climate change policies, what grade do you give the Biden administration? Well, you know, it's, it, it's early, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would, <laughs> it would have to be, it's not even a midterm grade. It's a very preliminary grade. Right. Uh, but, but I think in terms of uh, what Biden has been, uh, has been doing, uh, I'd, I'd give him an A- mm-hmm. at this point. And, and it's largely uh, on the basis uh, not just of uh, details of policies proposed, but people put in place. That is, mm-hmm. Biden has yeah. put together just a superb team. Yes. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's by far the strongest team on climate change that's ever been assembled in a government. And uh, when, when asked what's the most important thing in achieving success in science and technology policy in government or indeed any other domain of government activity, I always answer the single most important thing is people. Yeah. The single most important thing is having an absolutely top-flight team in terms of relevant competences and their ability and willingness to work seamlessly together. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what uh, President Biden has put in place. Uh, I have uh, an, a great deal of confidence uh, in the folks uh, in, uh, in the White House, in the State Department, and the folks in the key positions have virtually all worked together before. John Kerry, 
uh, and uh, Tony Blinken in mm-hmm. the State Department, Gina McCarthy, mm-hmm. uh, and Eric Lander, Jane Lubchenco in, in the White House. It, it's uh, it's an incredible team. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, extremely mm-hmm. smart, broad individual. Uh, I have a lot of confidence uh, that these folks, with the help of a growing number of allies in the Congress, are going to get some of the important things that need to be done, done. And of course, it's very important that the United States is back internationally mm-hmm. in, in, the climate, uh, in the climate leadership. You know, you're speaking about the importance of the individuals, the personnel. Uh, if we think more broadly than climate, indeed more broadly than energy and environment, and make the contrast with the administration that just left office, in January, the the Trump administration, then it's just heartening to see an administration in a White House that actually relies upon the best available scientific and other kinds of real world evidence. Now, that's exactly right. Um, you know, when I first met Obama at this dinner in 2007, and we were chatting uh, before the conversation turned to climate change per se, And one of the things Obama said to me about the administration uh, that preceded him, the George W. Bush administration, he said, this is the most fact-averse administration Mm -hmm. uh, that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And of course, the George W. Bush administration came to be regarded (laughs) as quite respectable by comparison with what Trump did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so the contrast is uh, is extremely sharp, mm-hmm. and and um, again, the folks who um, who are now in place with Biden are all folks uh, with whom he's had a long working relationship, and so it's not just that they're great people, but they're people who have already demonstrated that they can work together. Uh, they're people uh, who have Biden's respect. Uh, there are people who can listen as well as talk, uh, that is, paying attention to the views of others that, that uh, may well be important. Uh, and um, so, again, I'm, I'm very optimistic. So uh, I, 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 I give it only an A- minus because of constraints that are already evident mm-hmm. on what they're going to be able to get done, uh, given the current complexion of the Senate. So that optimism is for the current administration uh, and and well-founded. Um, what I want to ask you about, and I apologize for this, is to make a, a longer-term prediction. Um, and a prediction that draws both upon your you know tremendous breadth of scientific expertise as well as your experience uh, in government and to ask you, where do you think the world will be? And let's say... 10 or 15 years from now, and I'm thinking of the U.S., Europe, and of course China, with regards to climate change policy and action. Not your hope, but your candid <laughs> expectation. Oh, that's a really hard question, Rob, as you, as you well know. Yes. Um, I, 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 I believe in working for the best and planning for the worst, mm-hmm. uh, and I think uh, the best toward which we're working uh, would involve... Uh, in, in my judgment, first of all, uh, a, uh, a very substantial tax on greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. uh, escalating uh, over time to provide 
increasing incentives, both for deploying the best available technologies to ameliorate uh, the drivers of climate change, uh, but also to invest in research and development to produce the still better technologies that we're going to need in the longer run. And that's your uh, expectation that we will have that over the next 10 to 15 years? M- m- my guess is that we will. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we I okay. think we will have a significant carbon tax uh, by 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I am uh, a congenital optimist. Yes. And, uh, and I realize that it won't necessarily happen. But yeah. I believe it will, and, and it will happen... Uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is that the impacts of climate change are now so conspicuous mm-hmm. that it is becoming impossible for people to, with any credibility at all, deny that this is an immense challenge to well-being on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the temperatures that are being experienced right now, uh, not just across the United States, but across much of the rest of the world in Siberia. We've got temperatures over 100 degrees, for heaven's sakes, temperatures of 112 in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're seeing an enormous array of uh, real impacts on human well-being already coming from climate change. More powerful storms, uh, longer, hotter heat waves, longer, drier droughts, much bigger wildfires, uh, impacts uh, on uh, species, uh, species that we love, species that we hate, species that we need, all being impacted by climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are coming to understand in larger and larger numbers that this is a challenge that society must rise to meet. And I think the deniers and the wafflers are in retreat. And that's one of the reasons I think we will get uh, at least quite a lot of what we need uh, in, uh, in the next few years. Uh, The most important thing, by the way, is what we do in this decade. As it's all very interesting to say, where are we going to be in 2050? What is going to be the global temperature? What are going to be the greenhouse gas concentrations? What are going to be the impacts? But if you look at the nature of the trajectory needed to get from here to there, uh, the single most important thing is, is not to try to predict exactly where we're going to be in 2050, but to take the steps over the next few years that we need to take in order to position ourselves to get on a trajectory we can live with. Yeah, I agree with that. Whenever I hear either corporate pronouncements or government pronouncements or from advocacy groups of this focus on 2050, uh, my reaction is always, and I've often said, is what's going to happen by 2030? What, what's exactly. the plan? Um, so exactly. fi- finally, um, because we're talking about uh, reasons to be optimistic in terms of expectations, one of the reasons I would think, just my own mind, is that it, it is clear that younger people, the youngest generation, I'll start with the primary school, but then you move on up into high school, et cetera, uh, certainly take climate change vastly more serious than older generations do. It's probably too soon to say whether that's an age effect or a cohort effect, but we notice it. And what I want to ask you about for a final question is what's your personal reaction to these youth movements uh, regarding climate change that were so prominent in both Europe and the United States, particularly in 2019 before the pandemic hit? Well, uh, first of all, I applaud the youth movements. That doesn't mean that I think they've got every last policy recommendation right. 
but the the enthusiasm, the focus, uh, the energy uh, are a tremendously productive infusion mm -hmm. in into the system. I mean, my my own view is that there are three big reasons uh, for optimism. Uh, two of them we've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the uh, increasing recognition that climate change is real and dangerous and that we need to act quickly to uh, minimize the ultimate amount of harm. The second is the energy uh, commitment uh, of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And the third is uh, technology is getting better fast. Yeah. That is, uh, we've seen enormous uh, decreases in the cost of uh, solar photovoltaic uh, electricity generation, tremendous decreases in the cost of uh, wind power generation. Uh, we may see uh, decreases in the cost of carbon capture and sequestration, decreases in the cost of uh, advanced nuclear energy technologies that might be able to make a significant contribution if we do everything right. Mm -hmm. uh, we are seeing fantastic improvements in battery technology, which are going to make uh, electric vehicles uh, the norm. Uh, so those three things together uh, the rec increasing recognition of the problem, the activism and energy and commitment of youth, and the improvements in technology. Those are the reasons for optimism. Well, that's wonderful because we've, we've come full circle at the end of our conversation here to talk about technology and the fundamentals of uh, physics. Um, so we're going to end with that. Thank you very much, John, for having taken time to join us today. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. So thanks again to our guest today, John Holdren, longtime professor at both Harvard and before that at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.